0: I was ready to quit. I mean, going forward, really, it's like I I want to win another title. This game ties us so closely together that it makes me proud as a Magic player and fellow nerd. I just wanted to somehow ease the pain, but it wouldn't go away.
1: Welcome to Humans of Magic, the show that goes deep into the minds of our favorite Magic players. I'm your host, James Sue. Every episode, I sit down with a guest from the world of Magic the Gathering and have a one-on-one conversation with them. The game is only the starting point. This is a show about deconstructing the mannerisms, goals, and challenges that they face. It's about the power of perspective. If you've ever wanted to know what's driving some of the best players in the world, and what's truly important to them, then you've come to the right place. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself. I've been a competitive Magic player for a long time. I recently wrote a book about my own experiences with the game, called Magic the Addiction. Yes, I was so involved with the game that I had to evaluate whether it was good or bad for me. After much soul-searching and reflection, I've climbed out of the darkness. Now I want to study how other players view the game, and that's where Humans and Magic comes in. This week, I'm talking to former vintage and legacy world champ, Roland Chang. Roland's magic accomplishments are truly impressive, with a string of vintage top eights in major tournaments over the years. He's been a vintage scene regular for well over a decade. What you may not know about Roland, however, is that he was close to leaving the game for good at one point. A seriously unfortunate event almost led him down that path, and the power of the community brought him back. He's also incredibly honest about growing up, his father's strict upbringing, many of his non-magical talents, amongst other things. My interview with Roland was actually planned months in advance, but we just couldn't find a time that worked, until now. A mutual friend told me that Roland was the guy to interview. And now that I've had the chance, I can understand why. Roland's story is about adversity, and also about balancing and focusing on the right things. He chose to dedicate a big part of his life to the game, but also understood when he needed to dial things back. He made time for family, for building his other networks and interests, and for finding a significant other. I couldn't be happier to hear about his journey with all of its ups and downs. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Roland Chang. How's it going? Hey, going all right. How are you? I am doing well. I am very excited to have you today on uh, Humans of Magic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, whereabouts are you this fine morning?
0: I'm in New York City. My neighborhood is Queens or Long Island City. and uh, It's probably about 9 a.m. over here.
1: Okay, how long have you been living in in that area?
0: Um, I've been in New York for... Now going on ten years, uh, I spent some time over in Brooklyn, and now I'm uh, I've been in Queens for about the last three years, working in Manhattan.
1: Okay, uh, did you move there for for work, or was it like since you were in school? Or so right after school, I just wanted to get out of the Midwest.
0: I was living in Ohio for a majority of my life at that point, and um, went to school at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and decided I wanted to join my sister in New York City, and uh, she was generous enough to take me in for at least a few months before she jetted off to L.A. But um, I was able to set my roots down, take over the lease, um, and I've been living in New York ever since.
1: Nice. I mean, you're basically a New Yorker at this point, right? How are you liking it over there? It's good. Um, Yeah, your show actually reminded me
0: of what uh, the humans of New York were.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the title that I so lovingly uh, appropriated.
0: But it was, you know, this, uh, this show is great. Um, I've been listening to a few of your podcasts. And uh, I mean, I definitely appreciate your uh, what you've been doing with it.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, what kind of magic events have you been playing as of late? I think there was a big one that you were a part of, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken.
0: So I was just in Columbus. So went back to Ohio for the first time in like about four or five years. And I was there for Eternal Weekend. Where there was the vintage championships, the legacy championships, um, and a few other events going on, but uh, primarily there to try to, you know, capture another title if I could. But it's it's some of the best competition coming from all around the world. Um, people from France, from Spain, Japan, Canada, all over, and just going over to Columbus. It used to be held over in Philadelphia. Um, I think at least the last three years, where Nick Koss was taking ownership and organization of uh, Eternal Weekend, which he does a fantastic job of, and kind of organizing the players and making sure that this type type of stuff actually you know rattles off, and there's paintings that that you can win once you once win one of these uh, titles. So, definitely was a good time over there. I would say <laughs> some of the grindiest magic that you'll ever play, but um, you get to see old friends and. I think that's the most important important part, where you can reconnect with the uh, the old Magic players that I don't know I I've, I've been playing with for the last fifteen twenty years now.
1: Yeah, I mean you have a long history in the uh, in the Eternal formats, right? So I'm sure that playing in these tournaments, you must run into just familiar faces all the time, right? Yeah, there's the guys that uh, I used to play
0: against when there was the Star City Games Vintage Circuit. Uh, I guess they called it Type One at that point. But uh, it was over in uh, Chicago. We'd, we'd go, always go there and uh, meet up against familiar faces. Um, I mean, these were the days of like, let's see, when Steven, uh, Steven Menendian and Kevin Cron were in Columbus still, and we'd, we'd always go there. So go up from Oxford, Ohio, up to Columbus, which was like an hour and a half drive, and compete against them in their own local tournament. But it was like a budding scene at that point.
1: And did you did you find this year that the players were all familiar faces, or were there also like new blood or or new entrants to these uh, older formats?
0: So I think we broke 350 in attendance for vintage. Wow! Every year it seems to be uh, increasing. This might this year might have been a little different with uh, the location and all, but there's always new faces, and I love the fact that there are legacy players that are just you know. Making their way over to the vintage format, either through a budget deck or um, borrowed power. The format itself is consistently uh, constantly growing, and I mean, I love to see like new competitors kind of spring out of it, and the ones that are you know maybe bigger names in other formats like making their way to compete in vintage because it's just one of these broken formats that is hella fun to play. <laughs>
1: yeah, I have to admit that. As of this time, I still haven't quite gone into vintage, but I have some friends in North America and Canada who went from legacy to vintage, and they're just they seem to be more excited about vintage these days for some reason. There's a lot that has been done on the sidelines
0: from, uh, and especially online with uh, Vintage Super League, uh, Randy Bueller and all the other pros and even just vintage regulars that are, you know coming together on a Tuesday night. Regularly to to make that happen, and it's it's great entertainment, and it's a great way to um, get people uh, interested in a format where I, I guess most people would think that you know it's out of reach, unaffordable. Um, at least through Magic online, they're able to you know test it out, play it, and enjoy the the same game that um, I've been playing for so many years now.
1: And, and do you find that for new players when they get into the format that their preconceptions or change or they end up enjoying it more than they thought? So I would say that they it, the, the
0: few players that I've been able to convert they're usually a little apprehensive about spending the money to do it and um, I kind of give them the reassurance that they really don't need to especially with proxying and um, going to tournaments that allow for anywhere from 10 to 15 proxies. I mean those will that'll take care of a good chunk of a good chunk of the cards that you need to play, but if you have a legacy collection, you basically have the groundwork for uh, putting together a vintage deck. And I mean, between friends and other players that are around, I mean, the the community itself can also lend pieces of uh, you know pieces of decks that are are necessary. And I think the community is where uh, the probably the biggest strength of um, of vintage and like you know being being able to, like, be around for so long now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I would just love to know, because this is the first time we've talked, I would love to know a little bit about your background. I mean, obviously, you've been in, in the New York area for a while, and you said originally you were in Ohio, but can you tell me a little bit about kind of where exactly you grew up and a little bit about your, your family and background? So my parents, originally from Taiwan, they swing,
0: uh, swung over to the States, like, in the late 70s, early 80s, and I was born in Akron slash Medina, Ohio. Um, it's just a suburb suburb of uh, Cleveland, Ohio, so northeast of Ohio. And uh, I grew up there. It was I was probably like one of I don't know two or three Asians total in the high school, <laughs> but um, it was probably not the most diverse area. But at the same time, it taught me a lot of just you know how how to just kind of be myself and be different, Mm. and growing up, I never really fit into any particular social group, Um, I was, you know, well, I had to do the normal Asian things of playing piano and violin, Uh, it was one of the things that my parents kind of instilled in me, they're like, all right, well, you're going to practice now, and practice were like an hour a piece, and you know, it was like a daily struggle, if you will, and It was tough growing up in the Midwest, where um, those expectations were kind of set upon me and my parents. I don't know if they they knew necessarily why they were making me practice, but I guess it was more just discipline of you know trying to get me to do something and trying to understand how to perfect it. So uh, it took me probably about five or six years of um, consistently practicing piano before I actually fell in love with it and I learned it or I. I had lessons for roughly 13 years um, before heading off to college, and I think that taught me a lot about just knowing how to take something, build it from the groundwork up, and um, then finally memorize it, commit it to memory, and then also perform it. Because I've I've been to many recitals where you see people struggling with that, and you're like, well, you know, if you put in the time to to memorize it and to execute it, um, it just freely flows and you you feel like you know you can really enjoy the music but um, so music has always been a big part of my, my upbringing and I sang in uh, choirs all throughout um, middle school high school and into college but during that time I was also very heavily involved in sports so I played soccer and uh, tennis growing up and I think that was another those those were both another set of sports where or, or Skills that were just, you know, it, it it requires a lot of practice, and so this, all this stuff could could have been applied to magic, but at the point at that point, definitely did not um, do that because my parents, they saw magic as a distraction, and uh, especially for academics. I mean, they wanted me to be a straight A student, and with all this stuff going on, I honestly do not know how kids do it, but I was probably like A or B student. And um, it just wasn't, it just was too much. And I mean, for me to escape, try to play games and uh, try to play magic, like in the background, it was almost impossible. So I mean, eventually I went off to college and that's where (laughs) everything kind of let loose. And I I I wasn't under the watchful eye of my parents and I was able to really, you know, full on explore my interests and my hobbies including ultimate frisbee where i was like just between tennis ultimate frisbee magic and then eventually poker i was all over the place and then more focused on the extracurriculars than actually um doing the academics but you know trying to make that balance was uh one of the biggest keys that i had to learn otherwise i would i was going to
1: like you know basically foul out but thankfully i didn't let that happen (laughs) so you definitely felt a felt some pressure and high expectations from your parents when you were when you were a kid and even through high school, right? Yeah, I think the
0: biggest thing was my dad. I mean, I've, I've had this conversation over and over with him basically talking about the life struggle that he had um, when he was growing up. He was the the first son and always, you know, needed to be the, the best performer. Um, so he in Taiwan, he was like always within the top 10 of his class, um, if not valedictorian. And I mean, that's a lot of pressure to put on one person. And the only difference between him and I or we were, I mean, his situation was that if he failed, I mean, there goes his future. Whereas like if I failed at one of those things that I had to, I mean, I could at least try to like rely on the other things, but I never really found a focus. So his focus was just fully on academics and mine was all over the place. But I think that he underst- He now understands that, that you know, Academics is important still, but um, I probably needed to hone in on a few, like probably less things. And um, I guess if I focused solely on academics, I might be bored out of my mind. But um, at the same time, um, I feel like going through the route that I did, it's definitely made me a more well rounded person. So he understands that now and accepts it.
1: So when you enter college, where did you go and what did you study? So when I was at Miami University, I
0: was, I studied marketing, but initially I actually went there um, to try to um, join their architecture program and spent my first semester there uh, taking fine arts courses and trying to work up a portfolio, which eventually just didn't pan out. So I became like a business major um, and uh, eventually by the end of the the four years was focused on marketing. I did spend a decent amount of time also working on my thematic sequence there, which was uh, a minor, but it wasn't. Um it's a it's more of like a secondary focus, and so that was on uh, management information systems. So it's kind of strange how things work out, but um, I eventually ended up in the um, ad industry, on the online ad industry. So having those marketing the marketing knowledge plus the uh, database knowledge actually helps me. Helped me land a job with this company called Atlas Solutions, which was working on third-party ad serving, and um, that was acquired by Microsoft. And here I am, uh, ten years later. Afterwards,
1: yeah, it's it's crazy sometimes how like the the skills you build up end up um, being relevant for you. For sure, I I think I'm probably
0: one of the lucky ones to be honest. Like looking back at just. All those, all those things building up to it. I, I can't say that it works out for everybody because I've, I mean, I've seen um, just friends go through this struggle of you know trying to really identify themselves and like find their focus. And I mean, it's just kind of happened for me that I mean, just by happenstance that, like you know the, the job that I get into um, that I thought was more of a survival job turned into like full-on career that. I wasn't even aware of that was possibility. So, um, you know, you just get lucky in life sometimes, I guess, and uh, try to um, just roll with the punches when they do come.
1: Right. And how was your time at Miami U? I mean, you, you mentioned you did a whole bunch of things, right? You did sports, you did some music, you did some poker, you did some magic. Like, what, what, was, uh, what was college life like for you?
0: So everything out of studying was the fun part, and uh, I spent a lot of time singing with the Glee Club. So this was like uh, about 100 plus guys that were all coming together. It was an all-male chorus. Um, They even had a cappella groups. And one of my groups was, uh, uh, the group that I sang in for at least two, three years was called the Cheesies, And we'd go from like dorm to dorm um, serenading people or serenading, um, pretty much serenading all girls like across campus. (laughs) but uh you know it was, it was fun to do that and also um, kind of focus on um, what I wanted to do with magic and how to to learn how to play and test and um, I found some of um, some of my best teammates and best friends in magic at Miami and this was including Mike Baumholt um, who I think Think eventually created, uh, yeah, he, he created Iggy Pop, which was one of the ill-gotten gains uh, combo decks. Before, uh, I guess at that time, Brian Cooks, the Epic Storm was happening too. So both those tendrils decks were in contention for you know the best type of combo deck. But eventually, Mike and I we made you know top eights of our own uh, in in Legacy. But um, also Doug Lane. Uh, he's one of the co- or founders of Quiet Speculation, and he's he was one of the guys that also kind of got me in talks with Steve Menendian and Kevin Cron to join um, Team Mean Deck back in the day. And um, he was more connected with those guys And um, coming out of Columbus. And I, I, I knew that in order to step up my game, I had to really seek out some of these really, you know, just high quality players that, that knew what they were doing in vintage, and at that point, I was still um, even before meeting Team Mean Deck, it was always you know running my mono red goblins, uh, using Goblin Lackey to get in the Siege Gang commanders, like very basic strategies, um, and then not really willing to budge on adopting some of these more recognized strategies, such as I think what was it Hulk Smash or Grow-A-Tog? those type of, uh, like older, more recognized strategies that, that were, I guess, performing well at these larger tournaments. And I just wanted to play my own game. And, um, after getting my face smashed in a few times by Mike and, um, Doug was uh, very instrumental in like, you know, kind of honing my game down. And I guess in a sense, giving me a, you know, a taste of, uh, what the actual tournament um, tournament level play was. I mean, it was addicting. Whenever I like finally beat one of these guys, it's like, gosh, I I can maybe compete. And then like you know, then lose the next nine or ten, and uh, just come back, try to like try to just break through and uh, use my strategies. Maybe like go back and uh, if they had a suggestion on a card um, that w- might fit better for my strategy, um, I would just go back and like you know test that out, goldfish it a little bit more.
1: Okay, so I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out how long have you been playing Magic or competitive Magic at this point? Goblins couldn't have been your first deck, right? Like, you must did you play through high school and then you just got more competitive in college, or how did it work?
0: So in high school, I basically played maybe once or twice in tournament wise. Like, I, I I definitely wasn't competitive. That was more just you know tweaking my own decks at home, um, out of sight from my parents and. Uh, and then finally got to college is when, I, I guess, my game picked up, but I still wasn't I, I still wasn't playing uh, tournaments, and this was back in 2001, 2002-ish, Yeah. and by 2003 is when I first had my, my first uh, vintage tournament down in Cincinnati, and I think I finished second or third at that tournament, and I do remember using this Megrim, Urza's Guilt, Memory Jar combo deck, where, you know, trying to... Get my opponent to discard and lose life from uh, Megrim. and it, it worked really well. But it fell short in, against some of the more accepted uh, uh, accepted control decks like uh, Grow a tog at the time. Mm-hmm. So I learned quickly that you know it's that my, my deck was essentially tier two, and um, even though I was able to beat some of the more um, just regular aggro decks, I needed to find another way to be able to compete. So I didn't really get into the full-on competition level until 2004, and I stunk for for the most part. It was just, you know, I knowing that um, I had kind of weird ideas for for decks. I needed to, I guess, conform a little bit more and uh, to learn these, these strategies. And I learned off the mana drain, just reading so many articles about, you know, just primers. There, um, the mud primer, for instance, was um, perfect for me to. Or even the five-color stacks articles. I just and Kevin Crone was like putting some of these out, and I mean the deck deck just fascinated me.
1: So what was it about the deck that fascinated you? Because I think you're you were in my little bit of research on you, you. You're sort of known more for that archetype later on. So what what was the attraction there, going from, uh, Magroom or uh, or goblins to to something like that? So
0: there was a big step and a big leap into. Um, understanding combo decks. So that, that translated over to five color stacks because there's so many different paths that you can take and the decision tree for five color stacks really varies from every single game and recognition of all those situations, um, that's where you're going to be able to finally, you know, control the game down to a halt that your opponent can't do anything, cast a spell, can't um, does they don't have enough resources or whatever weak spot that are, is inside their own strategy, you're able to just wrap around and uh, essentially quash all their um, their goals in uh, trying to defeat you. Mm-hmm. So if it's an army, you got balance. Um, if it's trying to cast spells, you got your spheres and Trinosphere. Um, and if they're trying to expand with their resources, you got Crucible and Wasteland or Strip. Um, and the, the board is con- constantly shrinking on them with Smokestack. So um, just being able to man- maneuver around your opponent, even though they probably don't know what you're trying to do, um, I think that was the beauty of the deck, is that you had so many lines of play, and your opponent had to be had to be on edge. I mean, any of those tutors could bring up like uh, a balance or a strip mine, or a goblin welder is going to finish off the combo lock. But I was just always fascinated by how. Like, it just wrapped around a, an opponent and just wouldn't let them breathe.
1: Right. It sounded like a true, in every sense of the word, control deck. As in, you you, you had all avenues for controlling the game. And it sounds also like, <laughs> without having played it myself, it does sound like it's very skill-intensive and very decision-intensive, right?
0: hmm It's also just beyond the skill of playing that deck, it's, um, you have to have a rock-solid understanding of the metagame. And fortunately, at that time, um, it was very workshop heavy and a lot of people were going one particular direction with it uh, with the aggro side and maybe uh, red shops like uh, uber stacks type stuff But those were more more or less like the uber stacks one was more of a 50 50 for me playing against uh, the guys like Robert Roman um, or but the the aggro side I, I knew how to control and the rest of the field um it was not too unpredictable, and you could, you know, if you lost um, game one against Charbelcher, you at least knew, like, you know, all right, all the chalices come in, like they can't have fast mana. So just knowing how to mull against those and um, what the metagame was consisting of at that point, um, I think that was really clutch.
1: Right. And a bit of a tangential question, Roland, but had you ever considered playing some of the other formats at that time? in the early 2000s or was it just vintage for you?
0: So it was early 2000s where I um, I think I was talking to Doug, uh, Doug Lin, and he was like, hey guys, have you ever heard of this thing called Type 1.5? So that was Legacy at that point. And they had just, uh, I guess, recreated uh, a brand new band list. So from there, um, I was like, all right, let me take a look at this. I already have all most of the cards, I could probably collect some more. Um, to make sure that I can play, you know, maybe four regrowths in one deck. Um, it's it, That opened up my mind to trying this format, and um, I mean Doug made a big push on it in our play playtest groups, and uh, we eventually uh, found a small store in Indiana. I think it was Richmond, Indiana. It was maybe like anywhere from always like 10 to 12 players, but it was still a weekly thing that we could do on a Friday night or a Saturday night, um, go over there and, in a sense, I guess, beat up some of the locals. But <laughs> uh, we, you know, we're trying to uh, adopt this uh, the, this newfound format and get our get our own feet wet, test our own strategies in like a competitive setting. But we um, we found our little success, and you know, we're trying to build up our rating um, through the. Uh, through that local store and then eventually the GP Trials. But Legacy has been a part of my uh, competitive career for um, for a good good amount, pretty much the entire time I've been playing Vintage. But um, it's really more recently, though, I would say old school um, has um, been, in the last couple of years, a, um, part of what I guess my repertoire is, is just trying to play some of the cards that were printed in 1993 or 1994 um but these are these cards i never actually owned or played with back in those days because i just didn't have any access to them or i mean they were just not even on my mind all i really wanted when i started in ice age was to just you know try to find a jester's cap and uh, (laughs) i remember that. that i was cracking packs left and right trying to find this stuff and uh that was probably the most uh, reckless way to go about it, honestly. <laughs> yeah. But th- this was pre-Ebay, um, and there was uh, not, an, not exactly the easiest way of getting a Jester's cap, besides maybe tra- trying to trade for it, but I didn't have the trade fodder either. So yeah, it was. this
1: was the uh, Inquest era when uh, Balduvian Horde was the number one card.
0: Oh yeah, I, I cracked a box of that, and I, I managed to get two Balduvian Hordes out of one box. And I was uh, rocking my Baldivian Hordes at my, my friend's houses and they hated it. So it was <laughs> at, like, Gorilla Berserkers, they're like, what are these Alliances cards? This is like, this is bull, <laughs> I can't, <laughs> can't like compete against this because I mean, that to me was my Juzon at the time. Right. And I was like, sweet, I've never owned a Juzon, but I'll play these Baldivian Hordes and like the, the drawback of discarding a card at random is, you know, negligible. Compared to um, maybe losing life, which I really cared about.
1: <laughs> okay, so for you, it's uh, now it's old school, which is ninety three, ninety four. It's vintage, it's legacy. Did you ever go off into the other formats as well, like standard or extended or modern things like that?
0: No, I I never did. Never competed in that stuff. Um, it never really interests me, to be honest. And I think that um, maybe one day, <laughs> it if it. If I really got bored with these formats, um, I might go try it out. But the only the, the one thing that I've done um, every time coming back to Magic, though, um, whenever taking a break, is just drafting and playing limited. Um, that's one thing that I do. It's like a love and hate thing because I love to be able to see the new cards. I love to read through them, mm-hmm. but hate building that. Like <laughs> compared to vintage standards, it's uh, it's basically playing with like stones and said like in vintage you have like your rocket launcher ready to go and like <laughs> there's no comparison to the power level but you know it brings you back to the basics so that you can cut your teeth on how to uh, compete in magic and like remembering all the, the triggers, the phases um, you know anything's to, to, to set up for your next turn but uh, the most frustrating thing about limited has always been uh, getting manuscriptered and I just I don't know I, it doesn't happen as often in vintage so um, I guess I'm kind of uh, that's just one of my biggest pet peeves when I um, try to go draft or play sealed or one of those things but mm-hmm. I think it's better um, trying to play when I when I don't really care um, about how that how it goes So playing you know doing a draft or sealed with friends, it's a lot more fun for me and it's uh, especially in a, a relaxed environment that's what, so I really haven't considered you know, taking that to the next level because it, um, I don't know just it's a lot of time to be invested into the game where, I mean I think it's, at this point I'm I'm pretty fully invested into vintage, legacy and old school um, you know, trying to get other players involved with the formats and um, you know, rallying the, the east coast as much as I can, but um, playing the other, uh, the other formats would probably be a distraction for me.
1: Yeah, there's only so much uh, a man or woman can have on their plate. Going back to like 2003, you said that you were not very good. I'm now wondering how you got from that to becoming the 2005 Vintage Champ. Can you describe what happened? Like, How did you level up and how did you reach that, that level of success later on?
0: Strangely enough my first tournament that I ever won wasn't even in vintage legacy or legacy summer of 2003 I spent here in New York. I was interning um, In the city and in my off time I was going over to neutral ground I think at that point was the eighth edition pre-release and um, I joined that uh, that sealed tournament and I took it down Um, there's probably like maybe like 50 or 60 players in that sealed tournament. And, and that was my biggest win. And I, that was my first taste of, you know, sweet victory. Yeah. Uh, I, to carry home a box of 8th edition. Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still, like, you know, one of these things that I, I, I finished it and I, I beat everybody. So I, and for the first time I sat on top of the hill instead of, like, looking up and being like, I, I guess I could have done a little better. But my deck was cooperating with me that day. Um, I felt like I, you know, I, I had spent enough time during the deck construction of it to make sure that things were, you know, in the right proportions for mana, whatever it was. And I, I had a couple of bombs. I think it was Blinding Angel in there too, and uh, a, a good amount of the Master Decoys to tap down my opponent's creatures and control the board. But I mean, I found a way to victory, and I think that was my turning point of just trying to figure out, you know am I good enough as a player? Potentially. But, um, I, I didn't really think of it too much at the time. I was like, all right, yes, I got lucky. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, uh, I, I was able to finally have a deck that was, you know, cooperating with me. And, um, I got back from New York that, that year and, uh, into the fall. Um, I, I started really, I think that was when I really started testing even more heavily. And, um, practicing almost on a weekly basis, bi-weekly, spending a lot of time um, just really honing on uh, certain known decks and I, I think also the New York crowd is some of the toughest and in terms of just you know, the people they they're hungry to you know really to really just push each other but also to win and um, I, I don't know if I had that real grit in me before intern or spending that summer here in New York mm-hmm. and um, when I got back to Ohio I was like pretty much like jet set on just trying to get to the next level and um, it-, it was just a combination of things you know joining team mean deck being able to have access to um, even more quality players and uh, the the consistent testing that's when I, I knew that like you know things could turn around and my testing results were, were improving constantly. Plus, find, eventually finding workshops and uh, competing with those, that that felt like that was my style.
1: So Magic was already becoming a huge part of your life at this point, right? Like you were still going to school and doing other things, but did Magic just kind of take over some of the uh, the other extracurriculars that you had? or
0: No, actually during the time I was still very just all over the place. I mean, I was... I was with uh, the tennis club, the ultimate frisbee club, glee club, let's see, my acapella group, and playing magic, and eventually poker like a year down the line. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was was constant like, you know, I guess you could call it distractions, but it was more of like balance of, this was my balance of finding myself and finding um, ways to like fulfill my happiness that I really longed for for so long. And it, I can't say that, you know, I spent, I, I did my, my schoolwork, you know, 100% ever while I was there, but uh, it was more of a, a, a life learning process for me that I was feeling that I was making, you know, making progress in um, each of those things that I was doing. And um, at the same time, I was happy. I think that was the most important part.
1: What was the happiness? Was it being being involved? Was it like the camaraderie? Was it the competition? Just I'm trying to understand. Sure. Um, it, I would say the camaraderie, um, being
0: accepted in a community. I think by the end of I think it was my junior year or senior year. Uh, in no, senior year at glee club, I was the secretary for our club, so I had to really be fully invested in keeping track of people. Um, I was, you know, attendance taker. Um, and Knowing every single person in there, I mean, it's the same camaraderie that I I felt when I was a part of the the ultimate frisbee team. You know, relying on teammates when you're on the field, um, and even being part of the tennis tennis club, and just traveling to other schools to compete against um, other sometimes D three D three schools that had competitive teams, and here we are, just a club team, and we were still beating them. So it was. I think being more involved socially and growing that aspect of um, my life, because I felt like it was always kind of, um, I don't know. I was more of an introvert, if anything. When it came down to it, I was when I was in, Ohio, in in Medina, Ohio, it was like people knew, like knew of me, and they knew that you know. I guess I was a hard worker. I played tennis and I played piano, and that was it. And I'd never really fully. Reached out to the um, some of the more I guess popular cliques out there. It was like the kids that were I guess more highly regarded. They just they were hanging out a lot more, whereas I was at I was kind of stuck at home. Um, I was playing my piano, playing violin, and as like always felt like it was unfair for me. But um, this is I sound like an asshole right now because there's so many other kids out there that. Um, Are not as privileged and um, I feel like a lot of the times my parents provided me so much and I don't know I it didn't really strike me as like something that I was you know a gift to me but instead at the time um, I just thought it was like punishment I had to do this stuff Mm and um, I mean nowadays I I really fully appreciate what my parents gave like what they actually instilled in me and the opportunities that they, you know, provided me even though they didn't really necessarily have that growing up. But I mean, I feel like um it's really hammered into my system now that I mean, I should really appreciate the uh the ability to be able to, you know, have that skill to hone down on something and um, you know, focus on it mm-hmm. and then do do something well. Um but yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh
1: i am glad it worked out for you after all these years and uh with your your family's support and all that yep yeah so yeah going back to to uh you know you joined team mean deck and then you had won the uh, the seal tournament can you look back and think about can you remember what are some of the the things specifically that made you level up perhaps in in vintage or or magic in general were there certain things that uh that helped you improve as a as a player so
0: playing against that hard competition Baumholt, Dublin yep. those guys like going to these tournaments and driving out to Chicago um, for a weekend and just always falling short of top eight and that was the goal make top eight try to get in there um, I mean it, it, every time there was a tournament for Star City games it was always published online so the, the desire to to make it onto there and be like have your name published it was I think it, it meant more than anything to me so I knew that if I can make it that like make it to enough of these and like understand like the level of play that was necessary to get there I would eventually get there so my my hope was just to you know really take down one of these uh or just to even like make it into a top eight which I eventually did I think I made a couple of uh, Star City games Chicago top eights but Um, it just, when I finally did it, it was like a breakthrough moment for me and I knew that I could compete and take my deck, whatever strategy it was and, uh, you know, bring it to that next level when I needed to just, you know, having the confidence in my lines of play. I think that uh, those were developed in testing and, um, hammered out and all the kinks where there was just maybe a little sliver of opportunity for my opponent to sneak out of a, uh, a lock. Um, during that time, I was playing five-color stacks almost the entire time, except for maybe so, a, a brief stint playing Hulk Smash. But um, the, the whole training of going um, to tournaments on weekends and um, just testing throughout the weeks, um, I think that really helped me you know, grow my game and uh, developed like that, that competitive edge right um, by the time that I finally went to Gen con um, in 2005 that was the first um, championships that I was able to attend. Um, I was ready I was like I saw that painting that ancestral painting and I was like, I think I really really want that <laughs> <laughs> um, funny story with the uh, at that time I had taken a semester off um, I think that was that was right after I failed my uh, accounting 222 course which is like second semester accounting that it was a weed out course and I had probably the toughest uh, professor of all um, and that was the first that was the first class I had ever failed at mm-hmm. and uh, I know my parents were livid when they found out but um, I, I took a semester off to kind of reset, and during that time, I was at uh, working out of Dillard's to kind of repay, um, like make make ends meet, because my parents didn't. They're like, "All right, we're not going to pay for your college." I'm like, so it was more of like a, a blank threat, because I knew that they probably would pay for my college. Because <laughs> I would be able to, you know, actually afford that. But during that time is when I, quote unquote, hit rock bottom, mm-hmm. and. I knew that I needed to kind of gather my i don't know gather my thoughts again and try to rebuild myself and um working with the guys at dillard's and um I don't know if you know dillard's uh, you familiar with that
1: I just know that it's a retail store right i do they sell shoes or clothing or is that what it was
0: everything so shoes clothing um luggage uh, men's and women's everything and so similar to J.C. Penney's, Macy's, or uh, Bloomingdale's, that type of thing. I see. Um, so I spent my, I got hired there and spent the summer into the fall um, of 2004, just real uh, right before like being able to graduate. Um, I, I wanted to refocus everything, and uh, and during that time, I also realized that I, I knew how to work with people and uh, gain their trust, and. Um, that's I just built this you know a pretty good camaraderie um, with the people that I worked at with at Dillard's and but I also realized that I could not um, bear the thought of just being you know working at Dillard's and working in retail for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. and I knew from that point on I was like I need to get that piece of paper that um, I need to graduate and move on and uh, but so going back to uh, Gen Con though, um, right before Gen Con I I found a t shirt from American Eagle and during my breaks at uh, Dillard's I would, you know, go browse them all. So I found this T shirt that said world champion on it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was I still re- I think I saw that photo that of you wearing that. Yeah. That's Yeah. It's like it feels, It's like it's like Larry Bird not taking off the uh, the warm ups. Um, anyway, <laughs> nice. Exactly. It's like uh,
0: this is just you know superstition, whatever it is. Uh, just want to be. I mean, I've gone. To, I had gone to so many other competitions where everybody else had a really cool T-shirt. I was like, I want to wear a cool T-shirt. Yeah. And uh, so for six dollars, I, I bought that thing, and I was like, all right, I think I'm just going to wear this the day of uh, vintage tournament, like uh, vintage champs that year. <laughs> I told all my coworkers there, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go compete and stuff. I had their full support. Um, I didn't really want to let them down either. They they knew how much I loved the game, yep. And uh, yeah, I, I wore it. Um, by second round, I got called out for being a little presumptuous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> John Donovan out of Chicago, like he's like, Roland isn't you know, <laughs> it's a, little, uh, a little, a presumptuous little presumptuous to wear that type of shirt and i'm like nah i I guess it was kind of a joke um and the funny thing about uh 2005 is i lost round one i think there's this guy like i think his name is josh alvarez i might have butchered his name but um he had an anti metagame deck
1: okay it's like one of those griefer decks that couldn't actually be any decks other than like your deck or something like that
0: exactly and like he had every ounce of uh artifact hate possible, including um, Kotaki's Wage, and I
1: just Oh wow, that's going deep
0: At the time, I was like, oh wow uh, Turn 1 Lotus, Kotaki and I just I, I was a little bit on tilt Yeah, going into round 2, but I think round 2 is when I, I my opponent, I think he was on Oath, but he showed up and he said, congratulations uh, I'm like, what do you mean? He said, like, you get a, a free game because like I can see Miss Reg's deck, and um, so we played only like one game after that, and um, we that so that kind of turned my entire tournament around, and I just won out from there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was kind of a rad experience to um, you know go through, just jokingly wear a T-shirt like that, and uh, but having the desire to um, to win that painting it was I I really really freaking wanted that painting because it was to me it was it meant everything it was like um essentially telling my parents like you know i can do something with magic Mm -hmm. and to and i did call them up afterwards um you know brought tears to my eyes when i was like actually uh you know talking to them and they weren't understanding it's like roland what did you win what did you win and i'm like "Uh, i I won this painting and something they're like you should sell it i'm like you don't get it <laughs> yeah um, so it, it was a little tough and I think they they now understand the you know the, the magnitude of that to me in my life of how important it was to you know really capitalize on that opportunity to you know win a competition for once um, and that was the I think that was my biggest uh, Competition that I would had won besides that uh, eighth edition pre-release, and um, I felt like it was all the things that I was doing up until that point just made sense. All of the the cards that I was upgrading throughout the years, and everything combined, just it all came together and it felt right, Mm -hmm. and um, which was right about the time that I I finally graduated and uh, moved on to. Um, to New York but um, yeah New York had was a one of those situations where I you know got to New York was a completely naive midwesterner and um, probably put way too much trust into an online friend and that's when I had my incident at neutral ground
1: so what exactly happened there
0: so I lost $15,000 worth of my cards, uh, $5,000 worth of Jacob Orlov's cards that I was transporting for Gen Con the following year, or that following uh, 2006 Gen Con, where, um, and I was coming fresh off of a top eight um, at Waterbury. So I'd not like taken out my normal, uh, done my normal thing of putting my uh, cards back, my my important cards, like the Power Nine, back into the, the binder. And um, you know, putting my proxies back into my deck. So um, all this stuff was loaded up. A, a friend from uh, like that I met over the internet, that I met a few times um, in person as well. Like we were getting together at Neutral Ground to do some more testing, and that's what I did. I just you know always wanted to test, and um, I I met up with him that that early Sunday. Sunday morning, afternoon, and um, I what I I saw him in the back room. Um, I got up for a sec. I was like, "Hey, can you watch my stuff uh, while I go grab a soda?" I went up to the counter, and I um, he said, "Yeah, it's fine. You know, t- I'll take care of it." And um, as soon as I got up to the counter where I w- I needed to pay for my soda, I noticed that he was up like looking for a piece of paper. It's like. Dude, what are you looking for? Like, why aren't you with my cards? Mm-hmm. And that had a um, a moment of panic, and I ran back to uh, to my backpack, my cards, and uh, my deck box, which was containing all of my valuables, like seventy five percent of my collection at least, mm-hmm. uh, was gone. It was a Rook Rook box, one of those like metal container ones that yeah. had eight boxes, and those were like it included probably like two or three vintage decks, uh, maybe two or three uh, legacy decks, I think one Onslaught block uh, deck, <laughs> it was like zombies, and then uh, then the other box had all of Jacob Orlov's power, um, mana drains, or whatever I was transporting for Gen Con that year, and it was all gone.
1: How many minutes had passed between you getting the soda, going, oh crap, I, I should run back and... And 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 you running back and, and realizing it was all gone. Two minutes, tops. And the boxes, like the container was still there, but the decks were gone or the whoever it was took the whole thing?
0: Took the whole thing. Oh man. There the cameras that were in the store were not, you know this is boy, like mid two thousand or yeah, mid two thousand. To to look at camera footage that way, it's super grainy and you can't see see anything and this was only cameras in the elevator so whoever it was they got away with a lot of a lot of magic cards and it sucks
1: and and what was what was going through your mind at that time at that exact point in time at that point i was ready to quit you're just like this is it yeah this
0: this was it i had a big pit in my stomach i i remember having to kind of leave uh leave the store eventually, maybe after another hour or so. Like, and I sat on the curb, and I just didn't really want to talk to anybody. And uh, I mean, I'm sure people deal with theft and loss all sorts of different ways. But for me, I just wanted fresh air, and I couldn't get it. And um, it was like just my collection, my um, so, much, so many hours of you know, happiness and joy taken away from me And I, I just wanted to, you know, somehow ease the pain, but it wouldn't go away. And then at that point, I also realized I had just lost $5,000 worth of my friend's um, cards as well. And that didn't, like, instead of just walking away from the game at that point, there was no way I could just walk away because I still had to repay him back. And there was no way that I would not do that. And, um, I mean, that's, it was, it was a really, really shitty situation to be in. And I, um, looking back on it, it always like, you know, makes me wonder, like, is there anything else I could have done? And, um, you know, the police file, or I filed a report with the police that never went anywhere. And, uh, at the time, you know, thefts were, I don't know if they were like, Common as much as like they are, um, maybe today because like I, I'm hearing about thefts like left and right right now, which is unfortunate, and um, it's it's just a, a I guess a crappy thing about you know a collectible card game where there's thousands of dollars on the line, and uh, you're trying to you know protect your stuff, but also trying to play the game while you're um, while you're at competitions. But um, I mean, eventually. The thing, the only thing that kept me in the game for probably about the next year, was knowing that, um, you know, I was going to repay back uh, Jacob Orlov for I think just the five Moxen that's all he wanted. Um, at that time, was still probably close to like, I don't know, thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars, something that I didn't have at the time. And um, the biggest thing that kept me going though was my post. On both Star City Games forums and the Managerain forums and other forums, they were—I would say—the majority of people that reached out were very positive, trying to help me. And um, it was really the community of Magic players, vintage especially, that you know they—they they sent me cards in in the mail, and that's always meant the world to me. Just, I, and, I, and I actually I really regret not like writing down every single person's name that sent cards. But my, in my mailbox was always flooded for, for a few weeks there. It was just all, you know, magic cards coming in to help me out as a donation. And there were, I think Ray Robillard, um, up in the Northeast, he held a name or held a tournament in my name to kind of help me get back on my feet. And I mean, they, they understood and could empathize with me a little, at least. And, that's stuck with me for so many years now it's just like the community is where it's at and without that magic is really nothing I mean we be collecting baseball cards and like without a community you won't have you know actually fun fun times or fun games to play and after that though I took about six years off um, and this was after Gen Con um, taking down legacy but on fully on borrowed cards from Mike herbig
1: Oh, okay. So the legacy thing was after this theft. Yes. So I was. It was in between trying to
0: get to uh, get back to indie, so I could, you know, maybe try to defend my title for vintage. But then I take on, you know, legacy as well. But it was all at that point. It was such a swirl of uh, of stuff going on in my life, like just finding my new job in New York, and then getting my stuff stolen. Um, I was at the peak of. I was at the top of my game at that point. And um, I just felt like the rug had just been taken out from underneath me. And uh, but fortunately, I had enough contacts with through Mean Deck and uh, just my Midwest contacts that you know I was able to still. I mean, I already had my my flight bought to go to Gen Con that year. I just didn't have any cards to to play with.
1: And from that point on, you took you set a six year hiatus, right? Yeah,
0: I was uh, refocused on. I actually stopped playing Ultimate Frisbee then, around then too, and uh, refocused on tennis. And anywhere from eight to 10 hours a week, I was playing out on the courts of Fort Greene. And um, I ran a tennis ladder, which was like a competitive um, gathering of guys, or a league, if you will. And it was trying to um, really organize the the community. And uh, I got to meet a lot of the, the tennis players in Brooklyn. And across the city, really, and uh, we eventually built up from 30 people in my first year, all the way up to um, 80 or 90 people by the end of the fifth year. And these were like dues-paying members that were um, getting rewarded for playing, being being active, and um, it was a really good time for me to kind of reset. Um, and during that time, I also, I think, yeah, at the beginning of that six-year hiatus, I really, I did meet my, um, my wife, Stephanie. And, um, I was very, I I think I was in a different place of my life and I felt that it was, it was nice to move on from magic for a second there. And I spent, I I think I sold off the rest of my collection at that point so that I could fund a couple of uh, vacations and, um, put a little more, um, and set aside some a couple thousand dollars for uh, a poker bankroll that quickly dried up <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. uh, um you yeah, know it's, it's it was a time for me to explore other things and also get to know my girlfriend at that time Stephanie and uh, now wife so it was it was a good time for me to just you know reset
1: so i'm i'm trying to understand was the theft the catalyst for you going away from magic it was partial
0: it was I, I I guess like you know the, the fallout was that I only right after that theft I only spent a year trying to get repowered up and everything again, but I think the pain was too much. Um, it was everywhere I went. There was a constant reminder of like oh that you know he's the guy that had his uh, his stuff taken or stolen from him and uh, you know it it just sucked. And it was one of these situations that I don't think anybody would ever want to endure and um, and you know it was always like hey Roland do you ever find that guy that or girl that you know took your stuff and I'm like no and it's just you know everybody asking me about it and that's what you do at a magic tournament you find stuff to like talk about if it's not strategy it's like you know how are you doing like um,
1: but it wears on you right oh yeah heavily yeah so it's like you become known for that one thing which you had no control over um in the first place which must have been must have been tough exactly i for some reason like
0: just something snapped in my mind i think it was the spring of uh 2007 ish and um i knew i had to just kind of just pull the trigger and uh, fortunately i still had <clears throat> magic context that you know i think i sold a bunch of my stuff to jeff anon and uh he, at that time, was still wheeling and dealing, so I felt comfortable with him. Um, just you know, taking my the rest of my collection, it was like another five thousand dollars in my pocket, and I, with that money, I could at least you know enjoy myself, go out, go, go out to uh, Colorado ski like on the the mountains there for the first time, um, and then I think my first vacation with Steph uh, was out in Aruba, and I, I was like you know, I had this money that I was like, all right, well, I have some financial freedom for once. And, um, it wasn't tied up in magic cards. So it was, it was a nice, uh, uh, way to just reset and, um, not really have to worry about, uh, I guess magic for the first time.
1: And that that must've been a realization too, right? Is the, the fact that you're, for better or worse, I mean, it was sort of i mean the theft forced your hand but in the end it turned out to be a net positive right i mean not just meeting your wife but also like realizing that okay this money that i had sunk into cards could be exchanged for life experiences you know oh yeah absolutely and
0: it it felt like i just pulled a lever and was able to get some money fortunately and uh, nowadays it's even more so with uh the the spiking in prices of uh older cards it's it's so tempting to just sell out, but I mean, the point of keeping these cards is so that you can, you know, enjoy the community and enjoy the, the good times and, like, you know, fight through the bad times of uh, tournament experience.
1: I am really curious what made you come back because, like, six years is an awfully long time, right? Like, most people don't come back after six years, they come back after one year or, or six months. What exactly led you to, to come back?
0: So it wasn't like a a full on break for six years. I would say that you know, in between, I'd have friends reaching out and seeing like you know if I was if I was willing to go play test a little bit, go to a tournament with them. I wasn't fully retired, but in terms of you know mental mentally being there at a tournament, I was you know I was still on vacation mode Mm -hmm. Um, and. I was there more for the experience of just being with a friend, um, you know, going to the same tournaments. Like let's say GP Providence in 2011, um, just going up there um, and experiencing his deck that he was doing really well with, and I was able to still put together just scrap on by with like proxies and stuff, and or not proxies, but just cards that I was um, that I had borrowed. And um, about six years went by, and I needed to. I was I was in a little I was at a point where, I think it was right for me. I had just gotten married in 2012 at that point, and Steph after our wedding said like we could I mean I could take a couple couple thousand dollars and just you know go invest into magic, and that's exactly what I did. I probably took like 2,500 dollars and found a a store in Brooklyn called King's Games, and I saw that they had all this you know black bordered Power just sitting there in the case in this binder, and I was like, "Holy crap! This seems very underpriced for what I saw in the market so far." I guess throughout the that six years, I was always keeping a sort of keeping an eye on like card values and seeing what was happening with the market. There, I noticed that these beta cards were just, you know, well underpriced. So, you know, as an investment, I would get into it. And um, a little bit before that, like during my bachelor party, two of my friends could not make it into, or make it to my wedding. So, um, Mike, Mike Baumhold gave me this, uh, mock Sapphire that I originally had sold to him. Um, and at the time it was like this, uh, dog-eared piece of power that, um, was, had one corner barely hanging on, um, with a piece of tape. (laughs) Like, it, it was just like so many memories tied to that piece. Yeah. And, uh, he gave it to me at the bachelor party, give him a big hug for it. That's a nice um, gesture. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then he's my, one of my best friends at, at Miami of Ohio, Craig Seaborn. He was, I guess my greatest rival, but also best friend, um, when it came to magic. And he gave me, I think two volcanic islands. And I remember at that point that, you know, it was, there was probably like a hundred bucks a piece. And I was like, wow, this is, I mean, you guys are so generous and like, getting me back into magic (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah another thing about craig was that he was my winning opponent for 2005 vintage so it was very difficult for me to uh i mean i I wanted both of us to be in the top eight that year but it it could only be one and it came down to game three and i was able to stomp over him with a, a, a sundering titan but um with him being on a blue red fish I was able to just win that matchup, but I mean it was it was a painful match to play because how much time we had uh dedicated to to the game and like you know preparing each other for that uh for that moment I mean I knew that you know going back into the game at least um I had still had the connections with uh some uh, a lot of the community, and they're very supportive of me coming back um Nick Detweiler Visna Harris Nick Koss, These three guys are probably some of the most impactful guys in my return. And uh, I knew that Vintage was picking back up on the East Coast, and I wanted to be a part of it. And um, I, I got a set of workshops for $800. And by today's standards, that is a ridiculous deal, because that's like buying one and getting three free. So... Um, I was fortunate at the time and that was like, at the time it was probably buying three and get one free, but I knew that I, I needed, uh, to, you know, find my way back into magic and the community. And I w- it was at a good point in my, my life that I felt like this would be a good investment, but also I missed everybody. And, um, there were so many people that, you know, that I recognized at tournaments again, they were like, roll on your back. And it would just bring back these great feelings and just memories of, uh, of competitive magic that I really enjoyed. And, uh, but once again, I sucked at magic so badly that I was like, all right, well, back to the drawing board, You know, go back to play limited. I played um, for at least six months. I was doing, um, started out with Theros um, draft and uh, was getting my butt handed to me and uh, playing Legacy at 20 Side store over in Brooklyn, I, I was able to just work my way up from, you know, regularly going one in three in a weekly legacy event to eventually going two and two, then finally three ones. And then I think one or once or twice, I was uh, like four, four zero, but it was a grind. I mean, this is one of the things about magic that I love and I hate. It's like, you invest so much time into it, but sometimes it's, I mean, it's that little bit of luck that, you know, you're, you're gonna to have to rely upon that, you know. If if you're ready for it, you'll you'll be able to take advantage of it. But it's not always rewarding. And um, but the community is what makes it bearable.
1: Right. It sounds like you got right into right back into the swing of things and, and found your groove. But yeah, that is one of the things about magic is that there's a constant upkeep to maintaining a skill level. I guess not even. Just getting better, but not getting worse. Like it's just you just have to constantly play the game and think about the game and discuss the game. So there's there's a great there's a great cost involved there.
0: Yeah, and um, to be honest, I'm I'm at the point right now that I mean, especially after this Eternal weekend uh, last weekend, it's financially wise. I'm lucky enough to afford it, uh, but and I, I really hope that you know they can bring it back to Philadelphia and make it affordable for a lot more of the East coasters, but I'm also a little drained, you know, being spread across three formats and the the grind of like going in and out of rounds. Um, and just being in a tournament scene. Um, I mean, I, I definitely love to talk with people, um, get to get to know them, but, um, you know, it's, it's a constant like drone of, uh, So let me tell you about the the last rounds. You know what happened to me, and uh, um, you know people coming up to me to ask me for strategy help, and I want to, but honestly, it it, it's uh, it gets a little tiresome because it's it's uh, it's a little much. Um, I want to help them, but it's like when I'm in the tournament zone and like my mindset is there, it is incredibly hard to switch it off, and uh, so. If I do ignore people at the tournaments and stuff, like I'm sorry, it's, it's more it's not you. It's more just like I'm trying to uh, you know focus on this event and uh, trying to just make sure that my mindset is is correct for you know knowing what to do, um, sequencing wise or whatever it is for my for my next matchup. So um, yeah, I get into. I guess uh, I'm a self-described very competitive person, so it's just about trying to, you know, find my way to, to find that success. And, um, but I, I do probably, I I think I need to take a, uh, like, not know, a break, I'm guessing about three to six months away from magic, competitive magic. But I mean, the community is always going to be there. It's always like, you know, one of the best things about, uh, especially vintage magic to me is like, I, I know these people, I know, like, I can grab a beer with these guys and um after beating you know beating each other's faces for i don't know the last hour or two um but um i think the the competitive side of magic is is wearing me down for the last five years and um i might take a little bit and just step away for a little bit right
1: yeah it sounds like you've been able to do that to um to step away and and sort of refocus and come back stronger so i think that's uh it, it sounds like you really understand yourself as opposed to grinding it out eternally. So that, that that's good. If I was going to ask you, like, do you continue to have any goals around or objectives around Magic? Or is it is it less about that now? Um,
0: I think my goal uh, going into this year for Magic was that I wanted to... I mean, going forward, really, it's like I, I want to win another title. I don't know how it's going to come, and I don't know when it's going to come. But there's that fire in the belly that you know makes me want to constantly compete. But you know, it there's a mental toll that it takes as well, um, and just being in tournament ready mode, it's it's tiresome. But uh, I, I know that I want to dedicate um, the time that I get back into the game to trying to win another title. Um, either a legacy title or a vintage title and um, one of the other one of the two it'd be nice to you know proudly <clears throat> become a you know first two-time champion of it but um, I mean outside of magic I think that uh, I, I have my own personal goals of you know really trying to travel more I want to before I have kids um, that's I guess that's another goal but um, try to get to all of the the Tennis Grand Slams, so the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon. Um, fortunately, I'm um, blessed with uh, New York's, New York's uh, US Open, yeah. that I can just go there every summer. But um, I think traveling the world a little bit more before I really settle down. Um, and I know my my wife's like, she probably wants kids. <laughs> but, um, I, I feel like I'm still a kid myself, so it's like, uh, I have to figure out how to get that out of my system before, uh, you know, I, I guess I settle down. And um, I guess the first step would, would be um, getting all that travel and maybe getting a title along the way um, to really cement myself um, and my position in the game. But, I mean, I, if anything, I, I'm, you know, I'm happy with the stuff that I've done. Um, and leading up until now, it's just, you know, also the communities that we have uh, the weekly test group that I have um, in New York, and um, just the community around the East Coast for vintage and legacy is just incredible. So I'm thankful for just having you know access to that. Whereas like other parts of the world, they don't have anything weekly or even monthly, and we're we're blessed to have something that is um, you know so accessible and um, there's that much support for it and with, with the onset of, uh, you know, Tales of Adventure taking, like, grabbing um, the Eternal scene by the reins, or, like, right here in, on, along the East Coast, I mean, with their new legacy and vintage uh, Eternal Extravaganza series, I mean, that is just amazing to me, that, you know, someone is, like, Michael Caffrey is trying to really redefine, uh, redefine this, this scene and, um, you know, really pushing it forward after Star City Games is, like, you know, backing off of their support for it so um you know there's a lot to look forward to um and i guess my goals will eventually be woven into there but um in the meantime I'm kind of taking a chill pill from magic um i just needed to i need to find myself and reset again but um not to say that i'm gonna like quit magic or anything it's more just uh you know just taking a break
1: I hate to say it, man, but it sounds like at this point you're you're basically a magic lifer. Like your magic's always going to be a part of you. It's it, it at least it seems to me from this conversation.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'd say I'm a lifer. Um, you know, until, uh, I guess another thing happens, or hopefully nothing happens. I, I mean, I, I really want to be around for the competitive scene. I've made countless friends just through this game, and um, these are connections worldwide that. I mean I know that I could potentially hang out with and um, stay with potentially like in other foreign countries that this game ties us so closely together that it makes me proud as a magic player and um, a fellow nerd that you know we can appreciate this game for what it is the mix of what elements of poker and chess all thrown into one one card game that is collectible and valuable Um, it's I feel like blessed to even like be able to be part of it still, um, considering like just I don't know only what I guess ten years back now um, having my stuff jacked from me and uh, stolen away. I mean I'm I'm happy to be back and uh, knowing that there's so many other uh, people in the community that are you know willing to uh, just be open to just always you know hang out to chat to play. Um, it feels, it feels great to, you know, have this amazing network of players um, in my immediate area, but also just going, you know, all, all over uh, the states, knowing that I can probably just post up somewhere on, on the internet and uh, tying us all together, just being able to, um, you know, be a part of another scene without um, feeling like you're just... Um, encroaching on someone's like enemy territory it's like this is this is a an actual community of players where like we're all tied together to this to this fun game
1: yeah absolutely that's the that's the beauty of it all it's been awesome having a chance to talk to you about your your magic career and also life i guess yeah i i really enjoyed this talk i hope that uh, you enjoyed it somewhat as well thanks james
0: it's been an honor I hope I get to actually meet you in person one day and maybe like travel a lot to China and like you know see you in Beijing. I actually have not been to Beijing even though I did like a study abroad there I mean it's it's one of these places like that you know has the Wonders of the world right there so a great wall and I don't know um, and if you're ever in New York you know feel free to give me a give me a buzz would' love to you know meet up grab a drink or something
1: Well if anything uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to try and visit the East Coast next year. Awesome. Yeah, we'd, uh, we'll throw a party for you. <laughs> <laughs> or at least play a few games of Magic. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Humans of Magic. If you have any comments or feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Humans of Magic or at James underscore HSU. Please also check out my website if you have the time. It's called writtenbyjames.com. That's writtenbyjames.com. I thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.